Well, I read about a used car salesman, and when people went to the lot, he would end his sales pitch by this, let me show you a car that your neighbors thought you couldn't afford. Now, let me ask you, do you think he sold cars? Oh, yeah. Because you were going to buy that car your neighbors thought you couldn't afford. All right, now put that in your back pocket. Now, here's, let me tell you another story. And they're both related. You just have to think about it. And you'll hear as we go longer into the message. When I, in 1995, I worked at Garland Pipe Organ Company in Fort Worth. And uh, we were a tight-knit group. There's about five of us there. And and we built pipe organs in in the area in Texas. And... uh, we were working in the shop one day, and our supervisor, Steve, said, oh, man, you got to hear about this. There was a bombing. And he went and grabbed a TV, and we got in there. And if you remember 1995, I don't know if you can think of, remember this, but it was the Oklahoma City bombing. You all remember that? When Timothy McVeigh and his friends, I guess, pulled up in front of the Alfred Mueller building, and they blew it up, 168 people died. And when Timothy McVeigh was put on trial and convicted. And when he was taken to be executed, he didn't say anything, but he handed a note that he wanted to pass around to all the people that were witnessing witnessing his execution. And here's what the note said. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. It's from the poem Invictus. Now, why in the world Does the used car salesman who says, let me show you a car that your neighbors thought you couldn't afford, and Timothy McVeigh's quoting of Invictus have in common? I'm not sure if you maybe get the two connections, but I'm going to show it to you this morning. So we're in a brand new series. We started last week. It's called I Sin, and we've really been plummeting the depths or just starting to plumb the depths of sin. And last week, the first sermon was this, that the standard against which everything is compared is God's holiness. God's holiness is the absolute standard. Any transgression against God's holiness is sin. And in fact, we even noted in scriptures that not even the stars are pure compared to God's holiness. There is nothing pure compared to God's holiness. We talked about the fact that God's holiness is a consuming light, consuming fire, and one day everybody will be judged against the standard of God's holiness. Now, if you are a Christ follower, if that means, that means if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've repented of your sins, the good news is you won't be judged for your sin because Christ covers you. Amen? So that's a wonderful thing. But if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no protection. And you're going to be judged against God's holiness, and you are going to, of course, unfortunately, be judged. And we looked at a really tough passage last week that most times, most people probably wouldn't read in church. That was Leviticus 20. And we just said, here is God's holiness on display. I mean, this is how serious God takes holiness. Now, so we're talking about this whole thing of sin. And what is sin? Well, literally, it just means to miss the mark. What's the mark? The mark is God's holiness. So we have missed the mark as God's holiness. We can't live up to God's holiness and things like that. Now, the question is, where did that all start? Where did this whole thing of sin start? You know, what is is it? Is it created? What is sin? Well, before God created humans, what did God create? Does anybody know? Angels, right? Before humans were created, 
God created angels. Now, angels had three purposes, two originally, to serve God and to praise God. The third one was added after sin came into the world, and that was to uh, fight for God uh, and to join the battle on his behalf. But God created angels first, and, and how long he created angels before he created us, I don't know. Could have been millions of years, could have been billions of years, could have been thousands of years. We don't know. We just know that God created the angels first. And one of those angels is the one that sin goes back to. He is the originator of sin. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Okay? Isaiah, Jeremiah. So if you find Isaiah, that's a pretty big book. Then turn right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. If you hit Daniel, Hosea, turn left. Okay? So it's in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 28. And I'm going to do a little bit of teaching here for a second, or maybe more, mainly teaching. This is a passage that is a very unique passage, but a lot of Bible scholars, and including myself, believe that this is referring to that first angel there in heaven. Now, it begins, let me just give you a little background. The prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a prophet in Israel, same time as Daniel was there. And Ezekiel is prophesying to a living being named the ruler of Tyre. And that's the first several verses, verses 1 through 10. And his name was Ethbaal third, And so he was a real person that lived during that time. And one of the things, if you read through the first 10 verses, and we'll hit them in a few minutes, Ethbaal's sin was pride. I mean, this guy saw himself as a god, little g. He saw himself as a god. This man was very wealthy. This man was very skilled in business. He had acquired a lot of possessions, a lot of lucrative things that come out of his trade practice and things like that. And so the first six verses talk about uh, Ethbael and this ruler of Tyre and all that he had acquired and things like that. And then the last few verses, 7 through 10, God pronounces his judgment on him. But in verse 11, which is we're going to start at today, there's a change in the way the words are saying. In verse 11, uh, Ezekiel keeps going on, and, 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 but there's a change in what he says, and that's what we're going to pick up today. He says this, the word of the Lord came to me. So Ezekiel is a prophet. He said, son of man, which is a term that Ezekiel often referred to himself later. Christ used that term. Lament for, and notice the change, the king of Tyre. I just want to start there, stop there for a second because the first 10 verses was directed to the ruler of Tyre, which the word ruler, it was used in the Old Testament about 50 times, and it usually re was referring to government officials and things like that. But now he changes it from ruler to king. Now this word was used about 2,500 times in the Old Testament, but it was, it was always used to refer to a, 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 a chief magistrate, a monarch. Now, Real quickly, Ezekiel doesn't use the word king except for once. That's referred to King Jehoiachim. That's the only time he ever referred to an Israeli king. So this is unusual. He changes the word from ruler, which every time been used in the Old Testament was to speak of government officials, to now king, which was referring to a chief magistrate. So, so this is, there's a shift here. And so he goes on, he says, Son of man, Ezekiel, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. Now here's another clue. You were the seal of perfection. Now before, in the first 10 verses, when he's talking to the ruler of Tyre, it was present tense because the ruler of Tyre was alive. Ethbael III was alive at that time. But now we switch. Now we go from ruler to king. We go from present tense to past tense. So there seems to be a hint that this is not necessarily Ethbael. Ethbael III was an illustration of maybe this next 
person we're talking about. He says, you were a seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And if you're not convinced that this is a different person, look at verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, I can tell you this. That was a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred years before Ezekiel wrote this. Nobody lived that long, even Methuselah. All right, he died 969 years. So this is a, who is this guy? And there's only two humans in scripture that were in the Garden of Eden. You know who they were? Adam and Eve. Those are the only two. Now, there, there were technically three others involved in the Garden of Eden. God, Satan, the serpent, and ultimately the cherub who guarded the garden at the very end. But there were no other human beings in here. So who is this king of Tyre who's now gone into past tense? We're using a different word, ruler to king. And now we're saying this, this person was in the Garden of Eden. Well, clearly, I think we're talking about not a human. We're not talking about a person person. And look what he says. Here's how he's described. He says, every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared for you in the day you were created. So it's a created being, but obviously a beautiful being. Now, again, I, we're not talking, I don't believe, about a person, but the case is building. Look at this. You were, verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. All right, we're clearly not talking about a human. For I had appointed you. Look at where this guardian cherub was. For you were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked among the fiery stones. So we're clearly talking about an angel. We're talking about an angel who's in heaven, who's on the holy mount, who walked among the fiery stones. And what he says next, again, can't be said about a human. For the day you were created, you were blameless. I know we all think babies are perfect, but they're not, right? Nobody's, no human's born blameless. But this particular being, for the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. So clearly, I believe we are talking, and most scholars believe we're talking about Satan. This is a description of Satan. Now, a couple things just to point out real quickly. Satan is an angel. He was on the holy mount of God. He was in the Garden of Eden. We know that. The form of the serpent. They're like that. He was a special angel. Notice he was called a guardian uh, cherub and things like that. He was anointed by God to be in that role. Satan was a beautiful angel. Again, if you go back to verse 13, every precious stone adored Satan. He is, he's a beautiful, you know, a lot of times we think of Satan as having a pitchfork and red suit, red devil suit. You know, Paul said Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He knows how to appear as an angel of light, because that's what he was. And, 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 in, and when he was created, he was an incredibly beautiful creation. I mean, he, he was the pinnacle of, of the angels that God created. Now, that's another big thing to remember. If you, if you go to verse 15, he was a created being. All right? Now, that's very important for you to remember. Because Satan will never be more powerful than God. Amen. That's wonderful to know, isn't it? He'll never be more powerful than God. Because he's created. God is uncreated. So here is Satan, though. He is an angel. He was a cherub. He was a beautiful angel. He, he, was, he was created by God. And he was perfect. If you go to the text, he was blameless when he was created. From the day you were created, you were blameless in all of your ways. 
Now, as humans, God has given us free will. When God created the angels, he gave them free will. Right? Because without free will, you can't have love. I was listening to a, a radio show the other day. We were driving back from Fort Wayne, and um, they were talking about artificial intelligence, AI, and how advanced it's becoming. And in fact, they were playing a recording of a, an AI voice that sounded so human-like, they've now programmed it to say, ah, uh, okay, wait a minute, and you couldn't tell you were talking to a machine. It would say, I'd like to place an order, and, and the machine would say, okay, what is your order? And you give the order, well, um, let me see if I have that available. Let me check. It, it, you couldn't tell. And the radio hosts were saying, they were saying man, this is getting scary. You, you don't know if you're talking to a machine. Now, I don't know if you've seen, if you want something fun to do at night, go on YouTube, type in Boston Dynamics. They are building these robots that are phenomenal. It's really scary. They have robots now that are human size that can do backflips, that can jump over logs, that can run, can lift. I mean, they, they've got these, I mean, you know, and, and they're these robots. And, and they got robots that look like dogs that can open doors and scurry around and go up steps. And, I mean, it's, if you, if you really want to get kind of woo-hoo, watch those videos of what Boston Dynamics is doing. Now, let's just assume, and we joke with our son that his wife one day is just going to be a robot, but, because he's into all that stuff. But let's just assume that one day you have a robot, and you program that robot to say, I love you. Now, even if it looks like a person and talks like a person and says, I love you, do you feel like it really loves you? No, because you made it to say that. But what if, and it's a possibility one day with neural networks, what if that robot has the ability to choose? What if that robot could say and chose to say, Dan, I love you? Well, that takes a different dimension because that robot has made a choice. So when God created angels and humans, he gave us a choice to say, I love you or I don't love you. Because without a choice, it really wouldn't be true love. So here is Satan. He's in the presence of God. He's the anointed cherub, the most beautiful creature. Uh, and, and he's there at the throne of God. And he has free will. And who knows, maybe for millions of years, he proclaims with the other angels, holy, holy, holy. But at some point, he decides, I don't want to do this anymore. At some point, he looks at himself and says... No, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And at that moment, sin was created. Now, it's not technically created. It was found in him. It was generated in him. Sin's not necessarily a created thing. It's, it's, the, it's the absence. And, and at that moment, Satan said, I don't want to be like you. I don't want to worship you. Now, Isaiah, another prophet, kind of gives us another illustration that a lot of people think, again, points to Satan. I'll just read it for you. Here, here, here's, here's Isaiah Recount this again. I think this is referring to Satan. You said to yourself, and you might want to notice the words, two words, I will. I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly I, in the remotest part of the earth. I will ascend to the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. But notice what he says. I will. I will. I will. So at some point, 
Satan, because he had free will, said, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I will be like you. And at that moment was the beginning. Let me share with you a thought here this morning I want to write down. Pride is the root of sin. You know, last week I told you holiness was the core out of which every attribute of God emanates. His love, his mercy, his grace. All that comes out of the core of holiness. Pride is the core of sin. Oh, we're so prideful. You know, I don't know if you've, you've probably heard of Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, and you may have heard the story of the height of his power, you know, when he was the heavyweight champ of the world. He got on an airplane, the stewardess came by and said, uh, Mr. Ali, you need to fasten your seatbelts. And uh, he said, Superman ain't, don't need no seatbelt. And without a missing a beat, she said, yeah, Superman don't need a plane. You know? But there was a lot of pride in his heart. He was the heavyweight chance of the world. Again, Satan, that moment, he says, I will ascend uh, to the heavens. I will raise my throne above God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. When he started saying those things, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. At that moment, Satan said, I am choosing not to worship you anymore. I'm going to do it my way. And Satan fell. And he fell. Look at verse 16. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. Now, in verse 5, when Ezekiel was talking about a human person, the ruler of Tyre, he basically said the same thing about that guy. The ruler of Tyre, in verse 5, was known for his trade. And so again, uh, Ezekiel says, You, just like the ruler of Tyre, a man F. Baal III, just like him, Satan did the same through the abundance of his trade. And the people are like, well, what does that mean? Was he in business? No. Well, what it means is Satan used his authority and he used his power to get other angels to follow suit. According to Revelation chapter 12, basically a third of the angels followed Satan. When Satan said, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to stand the throat. A lot of other angels came along. Now, the good news is two-thirds of them didn't. But a third of the angels said, okay, we're going to follow you. Why? How could they do it? Because God gave them free will, just like he gave us that. And Satan capitalized on that, and other angels followed him. We call them demons. The beginning of sin was in Satan. And Satan also uses that trade not only to sway the angels, but also humans. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He goes to Eve in the form of the serpent and says, Has God not said? You know, Eve, if you eat this, you'll be like God. And he appealed to her pride. I could be like God. I could know good and evil. God's apparently not really as loving as he says. She wanted to be more like God than to have fellowship with God. And she fell. And you know, we... We have that pride. You can hear it in how we talk. We say things like, I want it my way. Or Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. Y'all know that. You know, we, 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 I mean, it's in our music. I mean, it's, it's all in our pride. You know, or we say things like this, I'm not going to give up whatever for anybody. We say things like that. Or I am the master of my fate. Or we appeal to the person buying the car. You can have a car your neighbors thought you could own. Pride. And you notice pride always has I in the middle. 
Sin has I in the middle. And every one of us gives in to this one. We say things like, well, I'm better than so-and-so. Or we'll say, I would never do that. Or we say things like, you know, I'm a good person. Things like that. Or I'm special. I'm the exception. The I, 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 I. The sin of pride. Here's the reality. Romans 3.23. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all short of the standard of God because pride is the root of our sin. Pride is the root of sin. And we all love pride. It grows. Sin grows out of pride. And as it grows, it destroys our, our love for God and our love for others. It, 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 as it grows, it, it, it seeks our own desires for ourselves. It's concerned about the here and now. Habakkuk 2.4 said this, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. That's us. So many times we're very proud. Now, what are the causes of this? Let me give you three causes here this morning. What causes that sin of pride? First of all, comparisons. We get prideful. One of the things that causes pride in our, our life is comparison. There's a story about a CEO of a, of a company and his wife, and they were driving along, and they needed to stop and get gas. So they stopped at a gas station, and the attendant came out, and the CEO went in to go to the bathroom, get some candy or whatever, came out, and he noticed his wife was talking to the attendant. And as he was looking at the attendant, he realized that this attendant was a man that his wife had dated. And so she was talking to a former boyfriend. And uh, so they, they get the gas, they get in the car, and they're driving along, and everybody's quiet, you know. And finally the CEO turns to his wife, and he says, you know, I was watching you talk to the guy there. He says, I bet you're glad you married me. Because if you had married him, you would have just been married to a gas station attendant. She said, no. She said, actually, I was thinking if I had married him, he would be a CEO, and you would be the gas station attendant. <laughs> But, you know, the reality is we like to compare. We like to compare. And we like to say, I'm better than so-and-so, or I would never do that, or look at me. And that's pride when we start talking like that. Again, if, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, verse 3, when Ezekiel was talking about the ruler of Tyre, you could see the pride. Here's one of the things that the ruler of Tyre, Ethbaal III, was saying. He was saying, yes, you are wiser than Daniel. He was, uh, Ezekiel saying this about him. Uh, this is what this guy would say. This guy would say, I am wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from me. You see, Daniel was a prophet at the time. Daniel was known for being able to interpret dreams. And again, he was with Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire with the ruler of Tyre. He's like, hey, I know just as much as Daniel. I can do that just as well. I'm just as wise as him. In other words, he was comparing himself and he was full of pride. Satan, same thing. I will make myself like the most high. I'm going to compare and I'm going to be just like him. What spurred him to do that? Well, verse 17, your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the earth. And I made you a spectacle before the king. So, comparison causes pride. Let me give you another thing that causes pride, and that is success. 
The ruler of Tyre was very successful. Ethbaal III was very successful. You look at verse 4, chapter 28. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired wealth for yourself. You have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. He was a very successful man. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with success. But it can lead to pride. If we're not careful, if we acquire money or we acquire success, it can lead to pride. You know, one of the funniest things to me in this age of social media, um, is what people post online. There was a bank robbery back in, I believe it was 2012, November in uh, Nebraska. And it was a lady, she robbed the bank, she got $6,000 and got away from the bank. Now the people gave descriptions of the person, but you know they, they were trying to figure out who robbed this bank. Well, later that day, a video was posted on YouTube titled Chick Bank Robber. She created a video of herself. She was 19 years old, and in her video, she held up a sign that said, I just stole a car and robbed a bank. Now I'm rich. I can pay off my college financial aid. If she only needed 6000 she, wow. Um, and tomorrow, I'm going for a shopping spree. Later on in the video, she held up another sign and said this, I told my mom today was the best day of my life. She just thinks I met a new boy. Ha, 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 ha. And of course, a few hours later, they arrested her when they saw the video. Success. She was so full of pride. Look what I've done. You know, I'm going to tell the world that I just robbed a bank. And the police showed up and arrested her. Success. Here's another cause of pride, self-righteousness. Oh, this is one, especially for a church. Oh, it's so easy to get self-righteous and to look down our nose. You remember the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector at the temple, and the Pharisee's like, I thank God that I'm not like other people. And he's sitting out there praying, you know, I'm not like the thieves and the rogues and idolaters. or not even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I have. Self-righteousness. It's a cause of pride. You know, a survey was done a few years ago asking uh, Americans why, what they were trusting in for their salvation. And a majority said things either like keeping the Ten Commandments or my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds or I'm going to heaven because I try to be a good person. All those things are based on self-righteousness. Well, God's going to let me in because I've been a pretty good person. Compared to so-and-so, I'm a pretty good person. Now, those are some of the causes. Now, what are some symptoms? I, I want to bring this home. Last week in, in the sermon on God's holiness, I quoted from Hebrews 10, which said, it is terrifying to fall in the hands of an angry God. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. And that verse was a verse used by a Reformed pre, uh, Puritan minister by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards uh, preached that sermon. He literally, quite frankly, read the sermon. He just read it. And people just, revival broke out. And it was the beginning of the Great Awakening. And, and it was based on Hebrews there that I read for you last week. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Now, Jonathan Edwards later wrote an essay. And it was called Seven Symptoms of Undetected Pride. And I thought I would just share with you what Edward said. Here are seven things of undetected pride. First of all, fault finding. If you are quick 
to find fault in other people, you very well may have a proud heart. If you're very quick to find fault in people, you may very well have a proud heart. Here's another one. A harsh spirit. If you have a harsh spirit, if you speak of other people with contempt or irritation or frustration, you may very well have a proud heart. If you, if you belittle people, you may very well have a proud heart. Here's another one. Superficiality. Another symptom. In other words, you're more concerned with others' perception of you than you are about God and your relationship with him. You're more concerned about what other people think about you. And in fact, you will fight the sins that are in public to make sure people think you're a perfect person, but in private, those sins that you struggle with, you kind of give them a pass because nobody will know about those. Superficiality, another symptom of pride. Defensiveness. Somebody rebukes you, corrects you, you get immediately defensive. You're not willing to listen to it. Symptom of pride. Presumption before God. In other words, you're demanding of God. You demand God do this. I need you to do this, God. I need you to take care of this. You don't treat God as God. Or, here's the flip side, you feel no confidence in God. In other words, you think your sin is more powerful than God. Presumption before God. Another one, a desperation for attention. You want the affection, you want the adoration, you want even the worship in all its various forms. And another symptom of pride, preferring, neglecting others, preferring people over other people. So, the beginning was in heaven with Satan when he said, I will become like God. And at that moment, when he exercised that free will and said, I'm going to turn my back, sin entered. It was self-generated by Satan. And then later he came in, Adam and Eve, and they also fall. Now, let me tell you, and I shared with you last week when I read Leviticus, that God takes sin very seriously. And I want to go back to our text real quickly and just wrap this up because look at how God treats this sin of pride. Verse 6 of Ezekiel 28. This is what the Lord God says. Now he at this point is speaking to the ruler at Baal III. Here's what he says. Because this man was full of pride, he says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Because you have regarded your heart as that of a God, I am about to bring strangers against you. Ruthless men from the nations. They will draw their swords They will against your magnificent wisdom and will defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a, de a violent death in the heart of the sea. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? The obvious answer is no. Yet you will only be a man, not a God, in the hands of those who kill you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of strangers, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord. God doesn't tolerate pride. He doesn't tolerate sin. Regarding Satan, skip down to verse 16. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with wickedness and you have sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you 
guardian cherubim from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom, so I threw you down the earth and I made you a spectacle before kings. You profaned your sanctuaries by the magnificence of your iniquities in your dishonest trade. So I made fire come from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. All those who know you among the nations are appalled at you. You will become an object of horror and will never exist again. Now, some of that happened. He was kicked out of heaven. Some of it will happen when he ultimately is put into hell. But God does not tolerate sin. God does not tolerate sin. Sin is a violation of God's holiness. And pride will keep you and I from acknowledging sin. So what's the antidote? The antidote is humility. The antidote to pride is humility. Humble yourself before the Lord, James said, and he will lift you up. That is the antidote. Salvation only happens when a person humbles himself before God and says, I have nothing to bring. I am a sinner. I need a savior. That's the only time a person's ready for salvation is when they humble themselves before God and says, okay, I need a Savior. Salvation doesn't come from being good enough, doesn't come from telling God, I will do this or look how great I am. It comes from a person of a humble heart. Healing only happens with humility. Hope is only possible through humility. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So here's my question. Is pride in your heart? Is pride in your heart? If you are not a follower of Jesus, the only way you're going to find eternal life, the only way you're going to have eternal life is you have to humble yourself before God and say, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Please save me. That's the only way that's going to happen. If you are a believer, look, we still struggle with sin. You and I have to be like the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Guess what that takes? Humility. The great Apostle Paul, I die daily. The great Apostle Paul wrote, not that I've already attained. Die daily. You and I have to die daily. So is there pride in your heart? When's the last time you've gotten on your face and humbled yourself before the Lord and asked him to forgive you of your sins? I hope it was today. I hope it's a regular thing in your life. Because let me tell you, if you and I don't live in humility, we will live in pride. We will live in, it's just, it's just there. We just are proud. And we constantly have to be living in humility. So is pride in your heart. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I am a sinner speaking to a room full of sinners. All of us in this room struggle with sin. And all of us in this room struggle with pride. First of all, Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that they'll repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and turn to Christ and respond to his conviction. That right now in their chair, they'll just say, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sins. I trust you and you alone. And Lord, this morning, for those of us who are believers, I pray, Lord, that we won't allow pride to seep into our hearts. It's so easy to do. That we won't look on our education, our background, our position, our money, our fame, our success, none of those things. But that daily we'll be humble. 
that daily we'll humble ourselves. Father, this morning as I read those seven symptoms, maybe some of them struck a chord. And I just pray that we'll just pause for a few moments right now and confess, Lord, I have the sin of being harsh with people. Or Lord, I have the sin of whatever and I just ask you forgive me. Lord, I'm just going to pause for a few moments and allow us to do business with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you said if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just and you'll forgive us of our sins and you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that promise. Father, again, I pray if there's somebody this morning that didn't know you, doesn't know you of Christ, that they've given their heart to you. Father, help us to be a people who walk in humility. Thank you that through Christ we can say no to sin. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.